Hello, and welcome to the ToxPod. Thanks for joining us for this special edition, which we recorded recently at the TF Virtual Conference. In those sessions, we were talking about some myths and forensic tox. And if you were there, you'll remember that we offered the opportunity to win a ToxPod mug, much coveted. If you listen towards the end of the episode, you'll find out who won it. All you had to do was contribute a myth. Thanks for everyone for sending them in. We got a bunch of different myths. Maybe we'll have to do another myth-busting episode sometime. Okay, no worries. We'll hope you enjoy it. Hello, TF Virtual. I'm Tim Scott. I'm Peter Stockham. And this is the ToxPod, TF's own podcast all about forensic toxicology. It's great to be here at TF. It's been a long time since the last meeting in Birmingham. Yeah, if you don't know much about the ToxPod, we're just a podcast where we talk about various toxicological related issues and, and generally have a chat about things. We've interviewed various experts in the field. And if you haven't heard us before, try give us a listen. Just go to your podcasting app or go to tf.org and have a look on there on the website. And we did a, an episode a while ago on some myths in forensic toxicology, and we've got a couple of sessions here on the first day of the TF conference. So we thought it'd be fun to get back into busting some myths in tox. Yeah, that episode was reasonably popular, and we thought, well, why not give it a go again? So here we go. And we're going to give you a chance to get involved as well and win a ToxPod mug of your very own. Have you got it there, Pete? Show oh, it yes, off. I have. We'll see if we can make it work. We'll tell That's you about fantastic. <laughs> we'll tell you about that a bit later, but uh, let's get into some myths first of all. So, oh yeah, there you go. Writing on the back. What about this for a myth, Pete? Seeing as we're here at the virtual conference, in-person yeah. conferences are dead. There hasn't been many lately, right? Yeah, well, that's why we're doing this conference now, I guess, because at the moment they feel like they're a little bit dead. But has this gap made it made the notion of in-person conferences or in-real-life conferences more attractive? I think it has. Yeah, I think... Even though I've heard that notion before that, you know, conferences are just going to be virtual now because we can do everything that we need to do. But I think for me anyway, it's made me realize what I love about in-person conferences, which you just can't get from a virtual conference as good as they can be. That interaction, that uh, face-to-face, you know, personal interaction and getting to know each other. That's really what I love about conferences. I guess if you're running a a training budget for an organization, You'd like to say that in-person conferences are dead and you can get as much as you, you could get out of a live conference from a virtual conference, but sure. you can get a lot out of them. But I don't. I think the personal interaction is really what you need. I wonder if maybe in real life conferences will be better now after all of this, once we do get back to having them more regularly, because now we know what we want from them more. You know, we're, we're more, we've missed everything that we had about them. What's, what's something you'd like to see at a conference, Pete, in real life conferences? Something ah. like to see more of. Well, something that I would like to see more of in conferences is more often uh, there's a lot of questions just asked by a narrower number narrow number of people in the room. And sometimes that's a bit intimidating for younger people who are there. They think they have to add a, ask a really um, advanced question, which might be coming from years of experience. But I think uh, more participation from the audience would be uh, better. What about a bit more swagger, Pete? You see it um, in... <laughs> You know, like um, in professional sports and stuff, someone scores a touchdown or a goal and they're, you know, doing a bit of a dance or the air guitar or whatever, doing some kind of celebration. I'd love to see someone get up and uh, do a good talk and then just just let her rip with some dance moves as they're coming off the stage. That'd be awesome. You mean like uh, 
thank you for your kind attention. Now like that. that sort of thing. <laughs> Something yeah. like that. that. Or it could be um, maybe just for fun, have a session where instead of waiting to the end of a talk, you can actually heckle. And so you, you can ask questions during a talk. Show us your validation. Yeah, next slide. Okay. I, I don't think many people did that last year. We didn't, for that. You didn't mention us. That sort of thing. But you probably right. wouldn't so want to do it for the whole conference. All right, let, let's get on to some myths that are actually about uh, forensic talks. What about this one? Oh, okay. If you're a good scientist, you'll be a good expert witness. Is that a myth? Yeah. I think some people might think that, but I think anyone who's in the forensic toxicology field really knows that, uh, I guess, in court, you're being more like a someone more like a school teacher who's used to explaining simple concepts to an audience who's not used to those concepts. So a good scientist is probably good communicating. You really have to be good at communicating both to scientists as well as to lay people. So that's a the main difference, I think. Yeah, if you know your stuff, you should be able to explain it well. But I think it, be, being a good witness in court isn't just about being able to explain what you know well. It's also about being able to answer the questions that lawyers are putting to you in the way that they can understand and jurors can understand and things like that. I think part of what a trap you can fall into, if you're a good scientist, you know your stuff, you can tend to over-explain things in court. Mm -hmm. So, you know, you get asked, did you find cocaine in the blood sample? Yes, we did. And we analyzed it by LCMS and we're using three transitions for identification and the measurement uncertainty was 16%. Or You can just go off, you know, down this rabbit trail of telling them how much you know, preempting questions, which is often not a good strategy to take in the courtroom. Definitely not a good strategy because it puts the, if you're a prosecution witness, for example, it puts the prosecutor off because then they've got to sort of shuffle forward through their notes so they don't have to ask those questions again later. And it's, uh, yeah, it's not the best thing to do. You get yourself into trouble. Yeah, it's, it's a skill. It's like presenting at a conference like this, right? It's a skill. You don't, just because you're good at science doesn't mean that you're good at, presenting at a conference. It doesn't necessarily mean you're good at being a witness in the witness box. It's a skill you've got to work on and develop. And a good organization should have, you know, training and uh, even proficiency testing of of some kind. Yeah, I think most organizations do have a sort of program like that going. It's also, a, you've got to be, some of the questions you expect coming to you in the box aren't necessarily what actually comes to you. It might be much more simple questions. For example, we had a colleague who was giving presentations and he was describing concentrations of blood, of the drug in a blood in, uh, say, two milligrams per litre. And so one of the questions from the one of the jurors came back and said, well, how do you analyse a litre of blood? Why do you take a litre of blood from someone? And so that's the sort of, um, and when they got that question, they were a little bit stumped. Thought, where, where is that coming from? That doesn't make any sense. Yeah, You but can't the, really tell the juror off. I guess. No, well, that, then that's another part of learning how to do it, isn't it, is, you can't sort of get defensive or, um, you know, oh, that's a stupid question. Next question. Which, which of you we'll jurors ask asked that question? <laughs> <laughs> that's right. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, so you've got to be ready for everything, I guess, and that's usually what you're not ready for is what you'll get. No, I think the kind of things that, you know, we often talk about with our colleagues about, oh, I'm a bit worried about getting this question because I'm not quite sure how to explain it or how to answer it. But they're often quite technical questions that we think about and they're, a lot of times they're not really what the court the case is hinging on. It's it's often much more mundane things about chain of custody or top timing yeah. of particular things, stuff like that. Yeah, fair enough. Does it work the other way around? What, 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 what if you're not oh. what if you're not a good scientist? 
Can you still be a good expert witness? Does it work the other way around? No, it doesn't. Probably does. does. <laughs> well, <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> You're not very good. Probably not a good do. expert. Yeah, you might you be might a good, be a good wit- communicator. Might be a good witness. Maybe not a good expert. Yeah. All right. Yeah, let's move on. What about okay. what about this for a myth? LC high resolution mass spec can identify everything in a sample. I guess we might have um, we, we might have touched on this uh, on a few episodes previously, but I think when uh, LC QTOF first came about, everyone who was using LC MS was used to very specific analyses like triple quadrupole instruments, where a very narrow range of drugs could be looked at, and they thought, well. LC QTOF or LC Orbitrap, whatever technology they had, you can see everything all of the time. You get all the information all the time. So you can go back and you can identify any drug. You don't even need libraries anymore, that sort of thing. But of course, it's much harder than that. Yeah. I mean, you, yeah. Obviously, you, you can identify a lot of things. You get a formula, uh, you know, using accurate mass spectrometry. But from there, it's quite difficult. Uh, not everything's going to show up anyway, because not everything ionizes. But even just spending the time, to find it. Maybe in theory, it's possible to identify not everything, but you know, most things, but practically it's not really possible at the moment, unless you've, unless that's your main job is doing that. Most labs yeah, aren't. Some really lucky people have that. Some, some lucky people have that job where all they do, do is um, look for new drugs. That would be good fun. But most of us, uh, if we're using a high resolution mass spec instrument for screening, we already know what we're, we, we have a targeted subset of what we're looking for. We don't go and look at any unknowns all the time, except in specific cases, I guess. Yeah. And one of the difficulties right. is, um, of course, which leads us to our next one, is the LCMS libraries. So there's no comprehensive LCMS libraries available, is the myth, I think. Yeah. I mean, it's been changing a lot in this space. Probably 10 years ago, maybe. That was probably true. But now, yeah. I mean, there's a lot of different libraries coming out for LCMS, LCMSMS, they're not maybe as reproducible as GCMSMS, GCMS. Yeah, so from, yeah, coming from a GC perspective, the the ionisation process in GCMS was very, very reproducible. So you could get the same ionisation and fragmentation on every instrument because every manufacturer decided to, it must be when the manufacturers talk to each other, they decided to use 70 electron volts as the standard um fragmentation energy and so each each manufacturer tuned their instruments so that they get reproducible spectrum across platforms but of course that's not possible in lcms because the ionization process is very very low energy so you only ever get usually only get an n plus h or m minus h ion and then the other more complex parts of the instrument have to fragment it and they vary vastly between instruments so it's difficult to get reproducible iron ratios in MSMS spectra. Yeah, but do you you need to? I mean... Well, it also depends on how you're using a library. So even with GCMS, I don't think uh, identification through a library match alone ever allowed you to report or is ever used to report a drug. Usually you have to inject an authentic standard just just to confirm you get the right retention time as well as the mass spectrum. So... Even if you don't have this, have the material in stock for an LCMS, and you use one of these libraries, which has got it's going to have different uh, ion ratios and that sort of thing, but usually across instruments, the actual fragments are, are pretty similar because they all fragment in a sort of a nucleophilic type uh, mechanism pathway. So the fragments might be there; there might be different ratios, 
And that fragment iron might be just enough information to, to let you say, okay, it looks like it could be this particular drug. And so then you get in the path of purchasing some authentic standards. I mean, it is still difficult to sometimes apply some of these libraries across different softwares, you know, to make them interact properly. But one thing that we could improve on, and I know some labs are doing this already, is sharing the libraries that we have with other people who at least have the same, you know, uh, manufacturer's instrument as you. So you can very easily share those libraries. And so, because to create one of these sort of comprehensive libraries, you really need like a team of people working on it, or you need a manufacturer to be, you know, sponsoring it and supporting it because it takes a lot of time to do it. But there's no reason two labs can't share the compounds that they've got in their own libraries. If they're using the same instrument, they're probably going to be quite similar, even though the conditions might be a little different. Yeah, I guess it depends on the environment you're operating in. If you're in a commercialized environment, then that's probably not going to be viable. But you know, if you're working in a, and as many forensic labs are around the world, as a publicly funded organisation, not necessarily in competition. That's the ideal world, I guess. Uh, then why not share your stuff? Well, but while we're talking source, about... Yeah, sorry, go on. I, I was just going to mention, like, for example, high-res NPS, I think it's a fantastic initiative. Mm. Uh, that's got thousands of NPS, uh, data on thousands of NPS, a couple of thousand, including fragmentation. And they also publish uh, libraries in every instrument format. So you can just go to the website, download the latest library and apply that to a, a general unknown screen to see, just in case there's any NPS present. Well, well I was that, say- if you contribute your own spectra, you can <laughs> they, they even calculate predicted retention times for your system. It's a it's a it's unprecedented, I think. Wouldn't it be good if they did that for all drugs? Sure. You mean not just even, NPS? Not NPS. Everything. Yeah. yeah. Sure. Yeah. Well, while we're talking about that, another myth is that the M plus H iron is the only iron of interest in LCMS. I mean, most methods that are developed will be looking at the M plus H iron in positive mode, we're assuming here. But in the iron source, you actually get all kinds of other things forming as well. Often you might get adducts forming, you might get in-source fragments, you might get doubly charged irons or dimers. Yes. And some of these things can be useful. They, they can be useful. I mean, often uh, instruments use ammonium adducts and... Uh, uh, things like the formate adducts is the other one I was trying to think of. Uh, what exactly is an adduct? Do you want to explain that, Tim, just in case there were? Uh, so it's just instead of a hydrogen ion attaching in that um, ionization part of the instrument, you're getting another positively charged ion attaching. So could be sodium, could be ammonium, could be something else that you're adding in there deliberately perhaps? Yeah, so it's a, a complex between in the gas phase, which gives you an, an ion that goes through the mass spectrometer. So, and you usually want it to be mostly one sort, but often it's not the case. I remember no, we had uh, when we had we kept on getting these potassium adducts forming in, and we worked out it was actually coming from our when we were pH adjusting the buffer, it was coming from the pH electrodes. So there was lots of potassium in the <laughs> mobile face. So that was sort of messing up a few analyses, as well as sodium messes things up. But one example where we actually used a weird adduct was a lithium adduct when we were trying to analyze digoxin. Because in the particular instrument we were using, it wouldn't. We couldn't get. Uh, I think people usually used a ammonium or a formate adduct to analyse digoxin, because it doesn't ionise very well. But uh, our colleagues in Western Australia told us that lithium actually coordinates within the sugar molecule part of digoxin, so you can get a very very high response. So we used to infuse lithium along with the mobile phase to get a lithium adduct, 
And the benefit of it was that it fragmented very well, unlike many other adducts. The lithium sort of stayed within the molecule. Mm. So that's a good way of using an adduct in like a targeted method, I suppose. But where you're doing a more comprehensive method, you can't necessarily change the settings for every drug to optimize it, infusing things and stuff. But I think often when people are setting up a method, you might the first step might be infusing the drug in your mass spec to see see what the iron is and to see to try and optimize the parameters of the MS. But you might see other things there. Don't don't sort of filter them out too quickly. Don't just focus in on the M plus H straight away because some of these other things, which are just appearing by accident, really can be useful. Maybe they can increase your sensitivity if you sum a couple of those things together. Maybe uh, you can quantum one of those things, even if it's consistently produced, whether it's a doubly charged iron or uh, an adduct of some kind, um, you might be able to increase the linear range, but if it's less responsive than the M plus H. Or we even had um, a method that we were using. We had two drugs, uh, modafinil and nordifenhydramine, which were fragmenting in source to the same thing. Half the molecule of those drugs is basically the same. So they were fragmenting in source, which is not really what you want to happen. And it made it difficult to distinguish between them, except that modafinil also happened to form a sodium adduct before it fragmented, or I guess the sodium adduct didn't fragment in source in the same way. And so we could use that to distinguish them. So sometimes that can be useful for identification as well. So this obscure metabolite, nordifenhydramine, um, which I don't know if you normally wouldn't screening for that, was that was just something that Maybe happened not. to be in a, a real sample, I guess, was it? It's got uh, the same retention time. Yeah, it happens yeah. to have the same retention time in that particular method. Yeah. But um, What are the odds? Mm. Pretty good if you're screening for a lot of different drugs. You're probably yeah, going to have something like uh, something. Yeah, it's probably more like it's prob- more probable to happen if you have more drugs you're screening for. I guess, yeah, of course. But infrequent, yeah. but probable. Yeah, definitely In- infrequent. Mm. But there's just a range of different things that the these adducts, dimers, doubly charged ions, whatever these other ions apart from the M plus H, they can come in useful in a lot of different ways. So don't discount them. Take note of them if you see them. You never know; they might help you to solve a problem down the track. Yeah, just or if you've got a triple quad, just switch it to full scan mode for a, just during your method development, just yeah. to see what's really there. Yeah. Mm. What about this myth, Pete? That it's best to have instruments, all your instruments, from the same manufacturer. I don't know if it's um, a myth as such, but it's it's a common practice, right? Yeah, I guess there's good reasons for that. I mean, it can, you might have special deals with a manufacturer. You've got the software. You've got a service contract. You've got you know how to fix them up, that sort of thing. So you might get stuck in a bit of a a rut, I guess you call it, in your lab. Yeah, it, it definitely is easier. Training for people, you only have to learn, you know, one or two pieces of software. If you've got a different instrument for every application you're doing, it does take more effort for sure. But I think there's a lot of benefits to having instruments from different manufacturers. I think they just help you to understand better how the technique actually works, like, GCMS, for example, if you've got a bunch of GCMSs, the, the software does things in different ways and that might help you to just expand your thinking on what's possible, you know, with that instrument or the hardware behaves differently. Yeah, sometimes different manufacturers do, for example, splitting two columns in a GC differently to others. So it may not be the techniques, not that bad, but it may just be the way that the instrument does it that causes the issues. Yeah, we had an issue a while ago with... Um, one particular GC where 
It was splitting into two columns and the splitting, that splitting part just didn't work particularly well with that model of instrument for some reason. So if that was the first one that you were doing and you were trying that splitting and it didn't work, you could tend to think that, oh, that doesn't work. You know, GC splitting into two columns, that just doesn't work because you're only trying it from this one manufacturer's instrument. But if you've got other instruments, you don't narrow yourself down so quickly by some of these limitations. Because d- different manufacturers do different things well, really. Yeah, and for example, if uh, you've got two different makes of LCMS, for example, the sources are, are very, very different. They call diff- the same sort of voltages and things different things like declustering potentials, skimmer voltage, all that sort of stuff. And if you get two instruments can, and you can sort of understand better how the process works inside the instrument. All right, I think, I think we've got time for one more, Pete, in this session. What, what about this for a myth? Smaller sample volumes are better. Of course they are. You use less sample, you use less solvent. Yeah, What's miniatur- your problem? Miniaturization, is where, <laughs> miniaturization is where things are going. Well, I mean, smaller sample volumes are good in a lot of ways. Yeah, you have to lo- use less sample and so on. The sample volumes are definitely trending downwards. We don't want to go back to the point of using 20 mils of blood or urine in a particular analysis. But smaller volumes for certain types of samples are maybe not so good because it's hard to get a homogenous, you know, representative sample from that. Certainly true for solid samples like, uh, you know, tissue, hair. You don't want to go too small. Otherwise, it's not going to be representative. So even in a, a liver sample, you take five grams of liver, extract that, is that even the liver concentration across a, a different lobes is different for specific for some drugs, isn't it? So, yeah, by taking a smaller sample, like 100 milligrams of liver or something, you, you definitely could skew your results. I guess that comes through in your validation. What about um, yeah. dried blood spots and things like that? That's very, very low volume, but I guess the, that's coming from a live person, where, and I think they obviously validate it to make sure that it's representative. I've seen papers where they do that. Yeah, I mean, I think with something like, yeah, some samples are very homogenous. Like urine, it's probably not going to be an issue. Yeah, doesn't really matter how how low you go, really, because it's very easy to make it homogenous. But even post mortem blood, for example, if you're Mm. if you go down to for your method sampling, like say let's say fifty microliters, twenty microliters, like if you go that low, it doesn't take much. Then you just get like a little globule of fat or something in that twenty microliters. It's going to make a huge difference to the result. Yeah, so some drugs do, I don't actually know, do some drugs accumulate in clots? So if there's a tiny clot in there, do drugs get excluded from from clots? I don't know. Yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, it it probably depends on the drug, yeah. But, you know, like everything in an analytical method, it's just got to be fit for purpose. Different uh, methods, different purposes are going to require different sample volumes. But smaller is not always better. And then there's the accuracy of the sample that you're taking as well. That's the other tricky bit, I think. Yeah, once you get down mm-hmm. so small. Okay, I think that's enough uh, myths for this session. We'll be back uh, later on in this first day to do another session on myth busting. And as we mentioned before, uh, we're going to be releasing this these sessions as a podcast episode in the stream. And we want you to submit any toxicological myths you have to us. And we're going to choose the best one. And you can win this ToxPod mug. And we'll send that to you wherever you are in the world. And we will limited also discuss. Not many people have them, Tim. They're very limited. No, I know. There's only a only few. Only special guests and and winners of this competition. 
of which there are none at the moment. But we're going to also pick the best one and discuss it on the episode when we release it. So you can send any myths that you have or that you know of to toxpod at tf.org. Thanks very much for listening. And we will see you again in the next session. Okay. Thank you. Welcome to the second session of the ToxPod here at TF Virtual. We're going to continue busting some myths in forensic toxicology as we did in the first session. All right. What about this for our first one, Pete? Quality assurance takes up too much time these days. It certainly does. No, it it, <laughs> it does it take time. Seem like it does. There's, there's no doubt quality assurance takes time. Yeah, does it take up too much time? That's that's the debate, I guess. Yeah. I mean, over the years, the amount of work that we've had to do has increased um, in terms of validation. New validations guidelines come out every year, and it, it seems that every year they get a bit tougher. There's a new aspect. I think so. For example, uh, there was... Uh, uh, ruggedness came in no, 10 years ago and everyone thought, well, how are we going to investigate that? And I still think a lot of people don't really know how to investigate that. And there's ID requirements and ID guidelines that come in. And then, of course, if something goes wrong, there's all these root cause investigations that we'll, we will have to participate in. There's training, proficiency testing, audits, ongoing competency. And <laughs> really, it's a wonder that anyone actually gets around to do any case with it. <laughs> when you list all those things off. Yeah, there's a lot of things that go into uh, making a good quality assurance system, and it certainly takes time, and and it should take time. Does it take too much time? I mean, obviously, a good quality assurance system means that you're producing good quality results. Ultimately, that's that's the main aim of it, which is part of what we're trying to do as forensic tox labs. But I think one thing that gets overlooked a little bit is that good quality actually improves your efficiency in your lab as well it's not it's not pulling against efficiency if you've got good quality methods if you've got good training uh if you've got yeah ro- robust and reliable uh instrumental methods and things like that it's it's going to improve your efficiency in the lab so yeah less rework that sort of thing i guess yeah less less batches will be failing for various reasons if you've got well developed methods you know i think Sometimes when you're validating a method, for example, you might have uh, maybe you're you're developing a a sort of a comprehensive screen, like with a couple of hundred drugs. You probably got a list when you start that of these are the drugs that we really want to be included or that we need to be included for some reason. And so you go through your validation and some of them work better than others. And maybe there's one or two drugs that really don't work that well and you can see it in the validation data, but maybe they're like just good enough to scrape past. And so you, you say, yeah, that's fine. You know, you kind of overlook that, um, that thing that doesn't work properly, but that's going to cause problems down the track. That's going to actually hinder your operations down the track. Once you start getting into using that method and all of a sudden you start getting failures or your analysts don't know how to deal with the problems that this is chucking up at them. Yeah, those things always cause complications. And then that in turn just means that you end up spending more time fixing these issues and in the using stage rather than fixing them at the beginning stage when you could have spent more time on method development. Yeah, sometimes you've got to create exceptions, you know, for when you're using a method, if this happens, then you have, now you have to do this work around. And if this happens, now you've got to do this work around. And all of that 
probably in the end is going to take up a lot more time than actually, you know, going back and developing the method so that it actually is robust and works well and, and has a high quality of result that's coming out of it. What about proficiency tests? Sometimes I can see on our work list that we have, there seems to be more, more proficiency tests than there are casework at times. Is that, <laughs> yeah, they come in bunches, they come they? In, it feels like that. Yeah, they come in bunches and they've, all, they've often got tighter deadlines than we have for our normal toxicology work <laughs> and seems to take over the whole lab at times. Well, there is a balance there, I suppose. I mean, yeah, yeah. I guess there is. Yeah, I can see the value in them is very important. I mean, that's the only way you can find out whether you can do many things through validation, but uh, proficiency tests really allow you to measure yourself against other laboratories and see how good you, your processes are. Yeah. And it covers everything, like from sample receipt right down to analytical accuracy and things like that. So it's they're very valuable. Yeah, yeah, for sure. That's that's an important part of quality assurance. I, talking about method validation and and you know how that causes problems. I remember probably soon. I don't, I don't even working in the lab for a few years. I think at this point, and I was developing a method for THC analysis. We we had like a multi step extraction method back then. It was quite cumbersome, and it was trying to simplify into like a single step extraction uh, in whole blood. THC in whole blood is just a little bit problematic sometimes. And probably using GC back then, I think. And I remember during the validation, there was one particular sample type, a type of whole blood that we get because we get a range of different things. And we just noticed that it didn't perform quite as well as the other ones. And there, there was nothing like no sort of major red flag, but it was just something that, oh, that's a bit interesting. That's That's not working quite as well. I wonder why that is. But we were at the time under pressure to like finish this method validation. And so we we just didn't really worry about it. We said, oh, I'm sure it'll be fine. You know, we'll work it out later, whatever the problem is. So we started using it. And sure enough, it wasn't very long before we started having huge problems with that method. Because even though it was only a minority of samples that were causing this problem, if you've even got one of those samples in every batch, now that's causing problems in every single batch, which is a headache for the analysts. It uh, causes rework. You've got to put samples back in. And if you put them back in and they're not working again, you know, now you're repeating samples three or four times. It's a real problem. And maybe one that we could have avoided by, by noticing that at the validation stage and then going back and saying, hey, we really need to fix this up now so it doesn't cause us problems later on. I guess another, another aspect to that might be, Tim, that you can't always... Um, we've talked about it before on a ToxPod, how validation doesn't tell you everything anyway. So until you actually get started using it, so don't be too hard on yourself. That's true. Oh, no, I'm not. This was young Tim. I can be hard on young Tim. Oh, okay. I'm, I'm a bit wiser these days. I mean, I think one thing, though, about quality assurance and quality systems and things like that is we don't tend to talk about it very much at conferences like this and stuff. So, But there's a lot we can learn from each other. We're all basically trying to do the same thing. So... We don't all need to reinvent the wheel. That's that's part of what can take so long in, you know, we spend so much time developing training modules and, you know, all of this stuff which surrounds quality assurance when we could probably be sharing a lot of this stuff more. We're, we're all basically doing the same thing. Yeah, that's true. There's laboratories that are doing pretty much identical analyses and, yeah, it could be a lot of overlap, um, even if it's... Uh, something as simple as court training or something like that combined with other laboratories could make it more economical. Um, sure. Training about validation, things like that 
that's all that's the same across all laboratories yeah so yeah. there's lots of things that can be made more efficient like that to make it even just like for- even like validation spreadsheets and stuff like that like creating a spreadsheet oh, yeah. to hold all your validation data that's if you're creating that from scratch it just takes time you know but it's just a data it's just I mean, a spreadsheet with all to the hold measurement data. uncertainty with all the measurement uncertainty yeah. calculations already exactly Ex- exactly yeah. what i'm talking about makes it less terrifying you know on the other side of this though is that we're talking about how quality having good quality actually improves your efficiency one way to actually improve your quality without uh, sort of spending a lot of time on it is to have efficient processes simplified processes because if you've got a very simple workflow that still does whatever you need to do but just the, there's not so many sort of decision points along the way and things where people have to make decisions about what to do next then that's going to lead to less steps or- yep yep Look, all, yeah all of those kind of things that's going to lead to less misunderstandings less potential for mistakes um, less logistical issues in terms of you know crowded racks of samples and things like that. Um, you know, less people can, making poor decisions. Just from experience, some of our and I'm involved in writing some of these SOPs. They're so long and complicated, right? I'm sure no one is able to read them <laughs> every time they do an analysis. But just simplifying. Uh, making the reading of the SOP efficient, like just highlighting only the parts that you need to know in the lab, not worrying about, uh, you know, superfluous things, which everyone knows about, like I shouldn't say superfluous, but um, well, OH&S issues, safety. Yeah. That's, they're the bits that everyone already knows through their induction, right? You've got a 20-page yeah. document, 15 of them are stuff that everyone knows. So condensing those could help a lot. Yeah, I think scientists could learn better how to write in clear, simple, concise English, or not just English, whatever language you're writing in. This is an international conference. But just writing simply rather than writing in like scientific jargon, we think we have to make things more complicated than they really are. Some things can be said very simply. Mm, that's true. Just to make it easier for everyone. Yeah. So, in regular language. Mm. Yeah. Maybe the myth here is that quality and efficiency are opposed to each other. We often think about them like they're, yeah. they're sort of, you know, we're trying to juggle these two things like on a seesaw, but they do actually, it's it's like they. Uh, they complement each other. Yeah. They complement each other. Exactly. All right. Let's move yeah, on to another myth. Okay. <laughs> Sorry. But let's move <laughs> on. Uh, well, actually, this, this one's sort of related to efficiency and that kind of thing. It's too hard to do research in a service laboratory. Yeah, so is that a myth? I think it is because, well, it always it depends, of course, on the individual circumstances. But depending on the person's uh, desire to do a bit of research, there may be opportunities to re- to slip a bit of research into their routine work. So I don't necessarily mean the way, probably the way not to do it is to do stuff on the side without telling anyone. Don't take any proper notes and uh, never finish it. Sound like you're talking <laughs> from experience. <laughs> Yeah, maybe earlier in my career when I worked for a water laboratory, I was it was a very routine job, but I was really interested in doing something a bit more interesting than this continual uh, same analysis every day for six hours a day. And I had a little bit of time to do some extra stuff. And so I was looking at different chemicals and I didn't really ever formalise that process. So as a result, there was never any deadline. There was never any research plan. And all that information I collected, which is quite, quite interesting stuff about tastes and odours and waters, all ended up in a, a half-written paper in a drawer in a building which I think has just been demolished to build a freeway, so it's probably there still. So that's all lost, all because 
I didn't really structure things well enough and never finished it. So that's that's the way not to do it. So I, I would suggest if someone wanted to do something like that, uh, what sort of projects would you suggest, Tim, that you could simple ones to get people started? Well, I think you've the trick is to try and make it dovetail somehow with your the work that you're doing ordinarily. So if you're working in a, a workplace testing lab and you're analysing urine samples, uh, it's probably going to be difficult to set up an experiment looking at NPS metabolites in human liver microsomes because that's just got nothing to do with your normal setup of your lab or the kind of work that you're doing. But you could very easily look at degradation of drugs in urine samples or uh, method development type issues, you know, you're developing methods anyway for some things. And yep. sometimes it's even like the the problems that you come across in just trying to do your operations of your lab, which you then try and solve, whether that's on an instrument or an extraction technique or something like that. They can actually make really interesting research projects. If you just, you know, put in a little extra time, you probably need to do a little more experiments and stuff than you normally would to, because you're not just trying to solve it for you. You're trying to demonstrate to everyone that, hey, this is something that we found. Uh, So it does take a little more time. It's not that it doesn't take any more time, but if you can make it dovetail with the normal course of your work, I think that that can work pretty well. Yeah. And when you're, I think if you demonstrate enthusiasm, that will get noticed and that may lead on to if people see what you're, you're trying to do, see the plan you've got, they might offer you more opportunities in future to do something more interesting. So Always um, be enthusiastic about research sure. if you're interested in that sort of thing. Well, talking about being enthusiastic about research, here's another myth. Everyone reads all the literature. Yes, I do. You do? I'm glad <laughs> to hear that, Pete. No, it's impossible. Uh, you can't read everything, of course. Yeah, there is so much research coming out these days in so many different journals. Uh, it's, it's a giant wall of knowledge, isn't it, that, you think that everyone else has. I think we've touched on it before in other podcasts that often it feels like because you're reading many authors, you're thinking everyone knows all this stuff and I don't know it. Yeah, I think everyone everyone I talk to about reading the literature, you know, the most common sort of feeling that I get from people is guilt, really, that they're not reading enough that they feel like everyone's reading a lot more than they are. But the truth is no one's reading any everything. I well, if anyone who's watching does read all the literature about forensic toxicology, um, probably time to get yourself a hobby because you're probably not doing anything else. Take up archery or something. Get outdoors. It depends on your role a bit as well. I mean, usually people are in a routine lab, they're reading in their personal development time or you know, at, at home if they're very enthusiastic. But yeah, it's just difficult to find time to do this. Well, the other thing that, yeah, the other common thing that I find people have is like an inbox of 10,000 emails or, you know, list of journal articles that they'll read when they get a spare decade at some point. I'm so not sure when that's going to happen. Up an, set up an Outlook rule that will put all the table of contents notifications in a specific folder that's called read this later, <laughs> for example. I've, I've, I've given up on all of that stuff, yeah, to be I'll honest. Well, my I'm strategy... My strategy is that I'll read, uh, you know, as many titles as I can of of things that are coming out from journals that I'm interested in, and then. But I've sort of got this ninety ten rule, so I'll read all these titles. Ninety percent of them, I'm not going any further than that. But ten percent of them, 
I'll think that's interesting. Go and read the abstract. And then 90% of those, I'm not going any further than that. I know what they've done based on the abstract. But 10% of those, I might think that's interesting enough to go and read the whole paper. But even then, I might only be skimming it, you know, and there'll be just a few papers that I'll read in detail. And those ones might be related to a um, maybe a paper that you're writing or it might be directly related to work you're doing. So you're not saying that if you're writing a paper, you only skim the abstract, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, no, I, no, I'm not saying that. But I think that is um, probably the time when you do go and read, you know, in a niche area you really get up to date with that one niche area because you're writing a paper on it or something. You're doing some work in that area. So that's a good chance to catch up in that area. And then you probably don't read anything about that again for a while, you know, after you finish that, you move on, yeah. move on to something else. Well, um, that's what that's what abstracts are for, right? They're to, to tell you what the paper is about in general and see whether it's worth delving into further. So I think so. Use them wisely. Yeah. So th- there is actually a... Um, What's the name of that uh, librarian who sends out uh, forensic emails about uh, papers? Jeff Tiedelbaum. Yes. Yeah, Jeff Tiedelbaum now is at the Florida International University. And he sends out a regular uh, notification of uh, articles of interest to forensic, to- forensic science in general from a forensic library. Um, some of them are less valid sciences. No, I shouldn't say that. <laughs> a science like fingerprints and, and comparison scientists. But there's an awful lot of... Um, Articles in there about forensic toxicology, forensic chemistry, and it's really worth getting uh, enrolling to the uh, distribution list. And you can do that by emailing forensic library, all one word, at fiu.edu. And that's how you subscribe. Tell them the ToxPod right. sent you. <laughs> all right. I think we've um, used up enough time here in this session. Oh, let me just give one last plug, though. If you're interested in reading about some statistical myths, uh, Brigitte Deschanais has done a great series in the TF Bulletin uh, in some past issues, I think over the last couple of years. I'm not sure how how long that series is, but she she looks into some statistical myths that are really fascinating and probably will help you learn a lot about how to approach statistics and, and that it's not so scary after all. It leads you through from a um, basic level right through up to more complex things, which is really helpful. Mm. All right, that's it for us. Thank you very much. Thank you for watching us. See you next time. And the winner of the ToxPod mug for sending in a myth is Marcella Velasco from California. She sent in this. I was wondering if you could share your opinions on the myth of overdosing from touching fentanyl samples. The USA has seen an increase of this type of reports from first responders. Yeah, this is a really interesting one. One that's been in the media a lot, obviously first responders going out to a scene, uh, particularly in North America, I guess, I don't know whether that's because the media is reporting on it more in North America or whether it's because of the opioid crisis that's happening in North America. So there's just more chance of them coming into contact with these types of things. Probably a combination of both factors of the media and the the high frequency of that drug in that area, I guess. Yeah, but there's been a lot of reports of first responders apparently coming into contact with some drug or being in the vicinity of fentanyl or what was suspected to be fentanyl and then having some kind of effects from that and being hospitalized fentanyl obviously is a very toxic substance there's been lots of deaths from fentanyl in recent years and some of these other opioids as well which are even more potent than fentanyl and there's going to continue to be a lot more of these this is not a problem that's going to go away anytime soon so these things are going to be around and they are dangerous so the idea that you can overdose on fentanyl 
just by, you know, coming into contact with a bit of powder on your skin or something. That is definitely a myth. Well, there are companies who've spent years and years developing fentanyl patches to, and they had to do develop special materials and solvents to get fentanyl to actually be absorbed through the skin. Yeah, so that's right. You, you've, it's not that easy. You've got to have quite a high concentration of fentanyl in a fentanyl patch. And as you say, it's, it's been specially designed to help it absorb through the skin. Fentanyl powder isn't going to just absorb through the skin in a matter of seconds, which is usually what these reports have been. You know, someone comes into contact with something and usually very quickly they're having some kind of effect. Yeah, I've seen a video of one of those um, events as well. It was quite interesting to see what happened. In that case, the guy handled a towel that was um, recently in the vicinity of some fentanyl in the bathroom. Um, but the, we should be clear that it's it's not that simple either, these sort of intoxications, because although it can't go through your skin, there's always a chance you can transfer that fentanyl that may only be micrograms, you might not, might not even better see it, to another part of your body, like your mouth or your eyes or... Yeah, somewhere where it's going to be more easily absorbed. Yeah. I think that's the thing about you know forensic toxicologists. We are obviously used to working with these kind of drugs all the time. It's a daily activity for us working with these types of very toxic substances. But we wear appropriate protective equipment, which is nothing fancy, you know, nitrile gloves, lab coat, glasses. Yeah, you wear that when you're handling sodium chloride or something half the time, don't you? With, <laughs> that PPE. With, can be quite coarse. Yeah, but I think the the thing that probably forensic toxicologists are trained in, which maybe first responders aren't, and this might be where the danger lies, is that we know if you're wearing gloves and you're doing something, handling something, you treat those gloves as if they're contaminated. Even if you can't see anything on them, you're going to take them off and throw them away before you do anything else. Whereas someone who's not as trained in doing that might, you know, handle some things that are seen. They've still got their gloves on and then they start trying to get the, you know, a bit of lunch out of their teeth or something like that with their gloves on. <laughs> yeah, that's a, that's a silly example, I guess, but it's that kind of thing that can lead to an overdose potentially. And of course, um, if you're handling a sample of fentanyl, you don't want to uh, you know, sneeze or take a deep breath or yawn or anything. So you do need to be careful with handling these substances. But getting back to the original myth, just by touching these substances, probably not. I guess the damage that that myth could do is that it may prevent someone from giving aid to someone who has suffered an overdose because they're scared of getting intoxicated by the, the drug that the person's had. I think this is something that forensic toxicologists may often get asked by the police officers or ambulance officers or, or whoever in their city, how they should go about you know, dealing with this issue. How nervous should they be? What kind of protective equipment should they use? And I just go back to you know the standard gloves that we wear in laboratories are enough to protect us from the most dangerous drugs that we handle. They're enough to also prevent, you know, a, a routine sort of car search or responding to someone who's overdosing. We're not talking about going into a clan lab or anything like that. I mean, that's a no. completely different scenario where you, you'd probably want to be in full hazmat gear when you're doing that stuff. But we're just talking about the ordinary kinds of scenarios that have been where these kind of things have been reported to have happened. Congratulations, Marcella. Enjoy your lovely new mug. It'll be on the way very soon. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time.
Registration is now open for the 61st annual TAFT meeting taking place from the 2nd to the 6th of September 2024 in St. Gallen, Switzerland. The early bird rate is only available until May 31st, so be sure to register soon for the reduced rate at www.tft2024.org. We look forward to welcoming you to St. Gallen for an inspiring, engaging and enlightening conference.